True Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion, which is a good lesson. The first L is listening, and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning, but listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from PPM-TV, that's Portsmouth Public Media Television, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks. To those who are watching and listening, and a special thanks to our studio audience for being here for our last show of 2017. <laughs> Tonight marks the one-year anniversary of True Tales Live moving to PPM-TV. So it's very appropriate that our theme tonight is, What is Home? 
Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. These stories help us bridge our differences and build understanding and respect. We do encourage the development of storytelling skills. We have monthly workshops and give other assistance to tellers. But this is not a competition. We don't have ranking or scoring or judging of any kind. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift all of us and bind us together as a community, and that's why we're here. Generally, our shows do have a theme, and as I said, this month we presented our theme as a question, what is home? During the holidays, many of us are already thinking about this topic. Where will we center celebrations that we have? Who will we be with? Is home where we are sheltered? Where we love to be? Or who we love to be with? I also think it's an interesting time to consider the question of home in our country, a nation of mostly immigrants that are currently discussing immigration and diversity issues. So we're really excited about tonight's show. We have five tellers coming up. Martha Reed Johnson, John Dover, Ann Soto, Suto, Sharon Jones, and Pat Spaulding. They each have a 10-minute limit for their story, and our MC Pat Spaulding will introduce each teller to you. After the storytelling, we will also follow up with an interview. Tonight will be of Martha Reed Johnson. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up to introduce our first teller. Come on up, Pat. Thank you, Amy. It's great to see this fine group of audience members here. First up, we have Martha Reed Johnson. She grew up in Georgetown, Massachusetts, then moved south. After 35 years living south of the Mason-Dixon line, she has just returned home. Martha is a counselor, behavior specialist, and storyteller working in public education who says she looks forward to once again shoveling snow and scraping ice off her car in the still dark hours of the morning before school. And who wouldn't look forward to that? <laughs> Tonight, she will tell us about finding home wherever you are in her story titled Finding Home. Come on up, Martha. Finding home. I started in Springfield, Massachusetts, and then in 1973, my parents announced to my three brothers and my sister and I that we were moving to Georgetown, Massachusetts. The school year had ended. My parents had rented our home to 13 nuns, and we were to pack our bags. None of us were happy about this, but my brother Eric said, I have just the thing to solve this problem. My father was a chemistry professor at a local college. And as part of the science department, at the end of every school year, his job was to euthanize the lab animals. And he didn't have the heart to do it. 
And so for the past year, we were the proud owners and, well, of 13 white mice. And they lived in these gerbil cages that my brothers had designed so they could travel together. And, and so we were standing in Eric's room looking at the 13 mice. And Eric said, that'll keep the nuns away. And so we let the mice go in the house. <laughs> we were certain that the nuns would not want to move into a house with 13 white mice. We were wrong. <laughs> they were coming, and we had to pack. So I decided... If the mice didn't work, then I was just going to hide at my friend Robin's house in a box on her porch across the street. And my parents wouldn't notice. They would go off without me, and I could stay with Robin. It was a perfect plan. My brothers would have gladly left me there at Robin's porch, but my little sister ratted me out. And my mom marched across the street, grabbed my hand, and put me in the station wagon. And we moved from Springfield, Massachusetts, to Georgetown, Massachusetts. When I arrived, I said, there's nothing but trees. And then I went to third grade, and I had Mrs. West. I quickly, secretly named her Wicked Witch of the West. And I would sit in her classroom, and I would try to do the work, but I would get bored, and I would start doodling all over the paper and drumming with my pencils, and she would come by, and she would either take my pen paper or she would take my pencils. And every day got harder, until one Saturday morning I'd had enough. And I marched out through the kitchen and slammed the back door and started across the backyard to the forest beyond, and my father was mowing the grass in the yard, and he stopped and looked at me and said, Marty, where are you going? I said, I'm running away. He said, well, can I come with you? I said, okay. And he looked at me and he said, well, what'd you pack? I said, nothing. He said, oh, we must go in and pack snacks. So we went into the kitchen and we filled a backpack with snacks and we made peanut butter and fluff and nutter sandwiches. Now, you all know what those are. All the time I lived in South Carolina, they did not know what peanut butter and fluff and nutter sandwiches were. But we packed those sandwiches and the snacks and a couple drinks. We put them in the backpack. My father made me carry the backpack because I was running away. And we went out the back door, across the yard, smelling that green, freshly cut grass. And then we stepped onto the first trail of the Georgetown Rowley State Forest. And as soon as you stepped on the trail, it smelled different. We could hear the leaves crunching in our, under our feet. And we started down the path following the stone walls, breathing in that dirt and those leaves and that cool air. And we followed the stone wall for a while and then took a turn on the path heading down towards the creek. And we spent hours at the creek looking for tadpoles and digging for worms and lifting under rocks. And, and then we were looking at the trees. My father started telling me about all the different barks and the different trees. And, we were looking for scat on the ground, and we spent all day in the woods. And late in the afternoon, we came to a place where there was a little clearing where some trees had fallen. And my father found the biggest log, and he sat us down there, and we opened up the backpack, and we ate our peanut butter and fluff and nutter sandwiches. And we looked up, and the sky was beautiful blue with these white fluffy clouds passing by. And my father said, I see a donkey. And I said, no, that's a zebra. 
and we spent the next hour arguing about the animals in the sky. We slid down and had our backs leaning up against the log with our head tipped back and watching those clouds, donkeys, zebra, elephant, snake, until the sky began to get dark. And my father said, time to go home. And we packed up the trash and the snacks that hadn't been eaten, and we headed back down the trails following the stone wall back to our very own backyard. We got into the house and sat down at the table with my brothers and my sister and my mom and my grandfather. We had dinner with the family. And then later that night, my dad tucked me into bed, kissed me on my forehead as he always did. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute. You're not supposed to run away with your dad. And I'm still here in Georgetown. And then I had to get up the next morning to go to Mrs. West class. And as I was drifting off to sleep, I thought I had gotten it all wrong. And then the next morning, when I was sitting in Mrs. West's classroom, and I was getting bored and restless, I looked out the window and I saw the blue sky and the clouds going by, and I thought, zebra, donkey. And I spent the day watching the clouds go by. And when I started to feel stressed and anxious, I just kind of closed my eyes and I could still smell the woods and I got through third grade, and fourth grade, and eighth grade, and I graduated from high school, daydreaming much of it away. And then I moved far away from Georgetown, Massachusetts. And I found that wherever I was, I remembered my father's words. Whenever you're feeling, feeling ill at ease, head to the trees. And that's what I would do. And this summer, 2017, brought me moving back to Georgetown, Massachusetts. I wasn't sure how I was going to like this. I was leaving a life that I'd built in South Carolina, and I was moving home to take care of my 85-year-old mother and a 200-year-old farmhouse. And when I arrived, there was lots to do, starting with a mice infestation in the basement. <laughs> I think that was a payback. <laughs> And then helping my mother transition from being in a wheelchair through physical therapy. And then, you know, dealing with, Mom, can I move some furniture here, there, and the, I don't know about that, dear. <laughs> and sometimes I would feel stressed. And I'd go out the back kitchen door, and I'd walk across the grass, and I'd head to that trail, and I'd follow it along the stone wall, listening to the leaves crunching beneath my feet, smelling that dirt, and I'd walk by the creek and get to that meadow. And I'd look up at the sky and I would think, donkey or zebra? <laughs> and then I would remember my dad, whenever you're ill at ease, head for the trees. And all is well. And I have found home wherever I go, as long as there are trees. Thank you, Martha. Good advice. We have trees around here. <laughs> Very calming. Next up, we've got John Dover. He lived on Long Island until his family moved to Summit, New Jersey, where he graduated from high school. From an early age, John wanted to be a writer, but he didn't think he could make a living at it. So he got a degree in psychology and landed his first real job as a child care worker at the Methodist Home for Children. 
That experience sent him right back to college <laughs> to earn his master's degree and snag a CETA-funded job for the chronically unemployed at Crotchet Mountain Rehab Center in New Hampshire as a tutor counselor. John worked as a guidance counselor at Farmington High School, then on to Winnicunit High, where he stayed on for 36 years until he retired in 2014. Just out of college, he thought he knew a few things about the world. But the kids at the children's home were eager to prove him wrong about that. Let's hear more in his story, The Methodist's Home for Children. Come on up, John. Thank you, Pat. I'm 22 years old. It's 1972. And I've gotten this job at the Methodist Home for Children. The Methodist Home for Children, I think it started as an orphanage. And, but it had become a place where social services could send children that were not being managed at home properly by their parents. So they would go to the Methodist Home for Children I was there for nine months, and most of the kids that I got to know were there for that whole time. So I think many of them stayed there until they graduated, and probably some of them were able to go back to live with their parents. I was kind of afraid of children, so the job was a little bit crazy, but <laughs> it, I mean, it was as close as anything I could get with my degree in psychology. Very first day, I'm in the hall trying to make myself useful, looking around, trying to get to know the kids. And someone comes up and sucker punches me in the arm so hard. And I look, and there's Clifford McCourt, this oafish kind of 13-year-old, running down the hall laughing. So I do what I think I have to do, which is I, I run after him, and I get him into his room, and I say, you've got a 15-minute timeout. And he stays there, still has a smile on his face. And this same event happens every single day when I arrive at the home. And Clifford, clumsy as he is, seems to have a sense of when he can kind of dart in and get that punch without my knowing it's going to happen. And I do the same thing in response. I chase him down the halls. He's laughing get him into his room for his timeout. it doesn't seem to be doing any good at all. We have a couple of days a week where we have to spend the night with the kids. Uh, there's one guy, Jim Watson, he's the supervisor of the cottage. And he lives with the 14 kids that are there. They're ages between 7 and 14 years old. Jim is kind of a gaunt, six foot two, six foot three guy, shock of black hair, uh, this acne scarred face, and a way about him that's a little bit scary. It was to me anyway. So the first night that I'm there, um, that I'm gonna actually spend the night, there's a staff room. I'm trying to get the kids to get out of their clothes into pajamas, get them their snack, get their teeth brushed, and get them to bed. And little Daryl Thompson, a seven-year-old, who's kind of feisty, is giving me a hard time. 
And I'm, I get his pajamas, and, and Daryl's there on his bed, and I look back, and there's Daryl giving me a full moon. <laughs> and I'm feeling so disrespected. I do exactly what I'm sure my father would have done to me, which is he, I go back, I give him about three swats on his rear end, and with each successive swat, I see Daryl's face go from this big grin to a look of surprise to this look of betrayal. And I feel terrible about this. I'm like, I didn't come here to hit children, and look what I've just done. The night doesn't go well. I don't sleep well. Next morning, I've got to get the kids up, get them off to school. That includes getting them up out of bed. Some of them don't, don't want to get up. Um, getting them to get their clothes on and getting them out front where we have tables for them to sit down. And Mrs. Thompson is making an oatmeal so that they can have something to eat before they're off to school. So they're up there like, you know, flinging towels at each other. Jimmy Bailey has pissed his bed again. They're laughing, they're carrying on, and I'm like, I don't know what to do to get them to do the right thing, and I'm trying to get them into their clothes and get them out front where they can have something to eat before school. And it's chaotic, and it's noisy, and suddenly Jim Watson's door opens up, and he looks out, and he gives me this murderous look. And the kids look at him and he says, what the hell is going on around here? And every single kid drops down into a chair, like it's musical chairs. And they look down and they start eating their oatmeal. And I'm kind of feeling like, this is good. We've got, you know, he's taken chaos and brought peace. But at the same time, I feel so stupid that I couldn't do this on my own. And I'm, I'm just feeling bad and wondering if I've really made the right place for myself here. Time passes. Things start to change a little bit. Um, Mark Tucker, a kid who allegedly has lived in a hospital for the last year, comes to live with us. And he teaches me how to play this game concentration, where you lay out the cards face down in a rectangle, playing cards, and you get two chances to pick it up. If you pick two of a kind, you can put those down and you get to pick two more. Call it memory now. And I'm like, okay, here's the guy with the bachelor's degree. I lose to Mark right away. And then I find that I'm losing to every other kid um, there. And I'm not trying to lose. I'm trying to win. And, but that seems to change things a little bit. And Richard Loomis, the coolest kid in the whole school, he um, starts to joke around with me. And Boise Sawyer and Clifford McCourt, or, sorry, not Clifford McCourt, Boise Sawyer, George Wojciechowski, they'll start to chat with me like I'm no longer the enemy. Little Jimmy Bailey, I hear him say, man, that was amazing. And when I hear that, I think, that's me talking. Those are the words that I know that I say. No one's ever repeated it back to me like that. And I'm kind of realizing I'm having an impact on the kids. And so things change until Parent Visitor Day. Parent Visitor Day is fraught. Parents are invited. Not all parents 
um, some of the kids don't have parents, and the ones um, that do come aren't always the parents that the kids want them to be. So everybody is kind of sad, but we're all on our best behaviors. The kids, the child care workers, the administration, we've all got our happy faces on, except for Clifford McCourt and then me. Clifford is teasing little Danny Handavanek. He's an eight-year-old whose tears flow readily. And I warn Clifford to stop. Neither of them has parents that are coming to visit. And it, it's too much fun teasing Danny. So he doesn't stop until I say, Clifford, you've got to go back to your room. And at that point, he realizes that he's going to be humiliated in front of all these important people. But I realize I have to get him back there. So I start to bring him back, and I'm having to muscle him back to his room. He doesn't want to go. I finally get him into his room, throw him on his bed. He picks up the nearest thing to him, which is his clock radio, and throws it at my face. I block. Radio bounces off into his face. Blood everywhere. I think I have blinded him. And he is screaming at the top of his lungs. Kids are appearing at, the, at his, the, his bedroom door. The nurse gets called. She cleans his face up. He's not, his eyes are intact. He does have a bad cut. He's going to need some stitches. They call an ambulance to bring him to get some stitches. And Clifford starts to feel comfortable and chatty. And he acts like everything's okay. And it's the weirdest thing. It's, it's almost like he's saying, Mr. Dover, it's going to be okay. And after that time, I've worked for another three months. Clifford doesn't give me any more problems. I think about the things that the Methodist home kind of offered to me, like don't overreact when a kid is causing problems because they're probably just doing it for attention and it's not personal. Do respond to that by letting them know that you don't appreciate that and you would appreciate if they did not do that anymore. Simple things like that that I didn't know how to do. And the most important thing is that everybody's a role model, not just to the Jimmy Baileys of the world, but everybody. And those are things that I really could have gained in the next 40 years in my work as a guidance counselor. Did I? Maybe. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> the... Thank you, Amy. <laughs> The children's home. Now we're going to go to a different story of home. Ann Suto, she grew up in New Jersey, spent the 70s in Seattle, Oregon, and a few other countries, and she is still growing up, so she says, right here on the seacoast where she has made her home for nearly four decades. Over the years, Ann has enjoyed creating various self-employment ventures, but now happily retired, she enjoys solo time creating jewelry, sharing time to play music with the leftist marching band, 
one of our favorite bands in town, with a weekly ukulele jam and with a lovely lady at Edgewood Center who sings as she plays her uke. Anne wants to know what this, um, oh, wants to let you know, sorry, that this is her first time ever storytelling venture. Let's find out her answer to the question that is also the title of her story, What is Home? Come on up. Thanks, Pat. So I'm walking out of graduation, high school graduation, <clears throat> a class of 500 kids were on the football field and, and then just scatteringly meandering through the elementary school playground to head back to the high school. Lost in thought, I'm pensive, I'm, I'm alone, I think. But all of a sudden I look up and I'm in step with my grammar school crush out of 500 kids. We don't say much to each other, but I kind of know that we're both feeling the same thing. What's ahead? We're leaving home. We're leaving childhood. We're going to go off to college, to the unknown. Well, this was Newark, New Jersey in 1967. And a month later, the riots occurred downtown Newark. That's like from Portsmouth to Rochester. It wasn't really near us but it greatly affected our neighborhood because people fled to the burbs. So when I came home from college on uh, vacation or summers, my house was there, my folks were there, my brother had married and moved out, but my community was different. It, it was, home was disrupted. And I'd have to go to three or four or five different towns just to see different friends. There, there, was, there was no hub of home anymore. And it was a heartache for me and a longing that lasted for decades. So it really has begged the question all my life, what is home? Well, I know that to me, people, food, music, connection, all of those mean home. And I have always found bits and sometimes huge chunks of that wherever I've been. Lots of definitions that we've all heard trite and true about what is home. But I love what my friend's brother says. Home is where your laundry is. <laughs> <laughs> I also equate home with, with um, sort of what's around you all the time. And if you, anyone read uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, he coined the word your caress. And his definition was that it's a team that does God's will without ever discovering what they're doing. But I took that word from that book in the 60s and take, took it through my life as sort of your karmic army. You know, they're the people that are around you as you go through life to help you through it. And um, they may be just passing through. It might be people that are there the whole time. So um, back to college for a second. So college was home for sure. I didn't go to the same college all four years. I transferred after freshman year. I went to Trenton State College, which was kind of like, think, uh, Plymouth or Keene. And it was just not for me. So I transferred sophomore year into uh, Douglas College, which is the women's campus of Rutgers University, think UNH. Well, sometimes freshman year, a carload of girls would hop in the car and go up to Rutgers for a dance or a mixer or something. And here's we're going back to grammar school guy. It didn't matter where I went. He went to Rutgers. If I showed up at, at the hub or the mob or a fraternity house or a, anywhere, a dance, he'd be there. 
I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, all right. So the first day on campus when I transfer in sophomore year, I'm walking through campus with a best friend from grammar school, more home, and I say to her, Lynn, if there's one guy I just don't want to run into tonight, it's him. Seriously, we turn the corner. And there he is with a friend. And they insist on walking us back to our dorm. And he asks me, can he borrow my Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell album? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's another piece of home, because Motown, very much home. That was high school music and, and great dance music. And he, he was a great dancer. But I said no, because I'd have to sing him again to get it back. <laughs> so this was the beginning of September. By the end, his charms had worked, and I realized I had fallen back in love with grammar school guy. <laughs> and I literally did a cartwheel in front of my dorm. I could do those then. I'd, I'd die now if I tried. <laughs> so, so we were together all through college and um, moved out to Seattle at the end of our 20s. We were on and off together in our 20s because we each traveled a lot. He went in the Peace Corps in West Africa for a couple years. I hiked through the Andes with a friend, carried my home on my back, everything I needed. Oh my God, when I got back home to my house in Seattle, a room in a friend's house, I was like, things, ooh, ooh. So, so I had to get used to that again. And um, I missed hot showers. The only thing I couldn't carry on my back. They have cold showers in Latin America. So he comes back from Africa and I leave for a year. I go, I go on another trip through the Caribbean and um, I had taught English as a second language and some Venezuelan, uh, Venezuelan students' family invited us to stay there, my friend Janet and I. And uh, we were there the whole month of December and that really felt like, like, my, like my sort of adventure, special, wonderful home because it was music and dancing and salsa and Spanish, I, sp I was speaking Spanish by then. Um, the whole month of December, in and out of every house on the street, five generations partying together. I'm like, this does not happen in the States. <laughs> so, so here's my friend Janet, two words of Spanish. She's got Orlando across the street has about two words of English. There's a little romance going on. I'm the, I'm the interpreter. I don't wanna be here. <laughs> so, Oh, I have to tell a great Janet thing. So while she was trying to learn Spanish and converse with family members, uh, the brother, one of the brothers was visiting with his wife and little one-month-old baby, and she tries to use her Spanish, and she, by using the wrong verb and sticking a feminine ending on the word for month, instead of saying, oh, your baby's a month old, she says, oh, your baby is a table? <laughs> <laughs> so everyone was wonderful about it. A year later, by the way, she came back to Seattle with Orlando talking circles around me in Spanish. She got it. But I went back to Jamaica where we had been together on our Caribbean run and lived in a tent on the edge of the Caribbean. Oh, the colors still have me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I was writing poems and songs and everything else. It, it was paradise until a scorpion joined me in bed one night. Mm -hmm. so, the comfort of home there sort of got a little scary. But I, I made it through that. I went back to Seattle. Um, now, um, grammar school guy who's been my boyfriend now for years um, is still in Africa. And we're writing letters back and forth. Um, and they take a week to get there. No internet. This is the 70s. I would walk to the mailbox and mail off a letter to him. 
And I'd walk back home, and in my mailbox, there'd be a letter from him answering something I just asked in the letter I mailed, or, or addressing the same topic, or one time we sent the sunset to each other, you know. It, it, was, it was wild. But we each lived our lives for a couple years, and every time we went away and came back, we'd come back and be together. So we got to do our thing. One of the things that happened when I got back to Seattle, I didn't know the whole time we lived there, that there was a place called the Washington Psychic Institute. And I went for a reading, and they don't know anything about me. They know my name. They asked me to say the name of someone I want to know something about three times. So I say his name. And the, they get this image and draw it on paper, a tree trunk. And they say, oh, these branches coming off are each of you going and doing your thing. And then when you come back together, you're like the trunk of the tree. You've created some strength and uh, bring back to each other what you've learned while you were apart. How did they know that? That was describing our relationship. So, um, so Seattle was home. The rain and the 3.30 sunsets got kind of gray. And he got a job. He was a forester. He got a job with the US Forest Service in Durham, New Hampshire. Even though we grew up on the East Coast, we had never set foot in New Hampshire. So we drive cross country to, to move here. And the whole way, he's ecstatic. New Hampshire's 86% forested. New Hampshire's 86% forested. He's like, I'm going home, baby. Talk about trees, right? So, so we, we decide we'll get married when we get here. And we go looking around for some nice trees to get married under. And we finally settle on Odeorn State Park. October 13th was wedding day. October 10th, it snowed. I love the fall. I love the colors of the leaves. No leaves. Still. Our two-minute ceremony, we both still to this day do not like ceremonies. Um, we, we experienced, and again, without talking, we both knew we felt it, saw and felt a shimmery bubble encasing us. It was just our parents and his sister, and we didn't care. We didn't, everybody didn't come. We didn't, we didn't want a big thing. Uh, we could see they were outside that bubble, but we were in this shimmery bubble of transcendence. I don't know what to call it. And um, boy, did that feel like home. And we didn't talk about that till like later that night, and we both knew it was there. It was a pretty amazing experience. So, um, so that was at Odeon State Park. Well, fast forward two and a half decades or so, and the son we had together um, went to school in North Carolina and never came back. And he, one of his first jobs after college, the boss says to him one day, oh, so you're from New Hampshire? And he says, yeah. He goes, do you know, and he's saying it with a North Carolina accent, very North Carolina guy, do you know Odeon State Park? And Lee says, my parents got married there. Boss says, my wife's in Odeon. I said, son, keep that job. <laughs> he's still there. It's like 10 years later, and it, it was the right job for him. So that two degrees of separation thing to me, that's part of being home, connection. Um, it just felt great. And... Um, Thanksgiving there last week was great, too. We're going to Carolina a lot. He's got a family now. But anyway, um, back to the seacoast and uh, our nearly 40 years here. Um, lots of things make this home. But last month, back to high school, we went to our 50th high school reunion together. Um, and I read an article shortly after that, uh, a guy that had gone to his 40th. And he said, walking in, who are these old people? Where are my people? And he said in the article, ah, Kurt Vonnegut would have replied, 
ah, you seek your caress. So I realized from that and from last month in our 20th reunion, I did the same thing. I talked to kids <laughs> that I hardly knew in high school. And now I know why from reading that article. I was seeking my caress. And I blurted out to a table of women last month at the reunion, these were our formative years. We formed each other. So it was just so homecoming. It was, it was fantastic. So all these things about home are true, whether they're trite or personal to me or however you feel. And don't forget that laundry thing. That's a great one. Um, but uh, to sum it all up, it's like this. That grammar school guy, that third grade boyfriend, that Newark boy, that captain of the football team when I eventually made cheerleading, it was the only girl's sport, my college sweetheart, my dance partner, my kindred world traveler, whether apart or together, my partner in life and crime, don't ask about the crimes. <laughs> the wonderful father and grandfather of our boys. He, most of all, <clears throat> and all the time, is home. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, <laughs> uh, shucks, in. <laughs> and you brought you home right with you. <laughs> We go from the trees to the Methodist children's home to a shimmering bubble of transcendence. Whoa, Sharon, you're going to have to top this. Um, Sharon Jones is coming up next. She grew up right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she was raised in a close-knit family of 13 children. She's currently writing a book about that experience. Recently honored in a special ceremony by the Black Heritage Association for her services in excellent... Excellence. As an entertainer and mentor, Sharon unveiled the Ella Fitzgerald postage stamp. The Portsmouth Herald accurately named her a Portsmouth gem. In her youth, she moved to Los Angeles to study voice and became an accomplished singer who toured with the legendary jazz artists all over the country. Now, she performs right around here in New England, where you can catch her act in Portsmouth at Demeter's Steakhouse. The Dolphin Striker Press Room, when it reopens, Rudy's, or in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. Sharon is a singer, a vocal coach, and now a storyteller who loves spending time with her family and hanging out with friends. Her story is titled, The Last Family Reunion. Come on up, Sharon. Thank you. I hate doing anything under this much light. <laughs> is, this, is this good, yeah? I'm from a family of 13, as uh, Pat mentioned earlier. Born and raised here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. My sister Karen and I were the only two raised and born here in Portsmouth. The uh, other members of the family were born and raised in Seneca Falls, New York, where there was probably as many black people as there are in Portsmouth. <laughs> My sister Jane was the consummate planner of the family. And when she picked up the phone, whether it was for a card game or a breakfast or a luncheon, we all ran to Jane's house. Well, this particular day, she called and said, you've got to come over at noon. And when Jane 
said you have to come over, all of us showed up on the doorstep. When we got there, she said, sit down in the living room and Emerson will bring you a cocktail. Emerson was her husband. We all sat and she said, we're going to have a party. Well, the Joneses always had parties. That's what brought us together and that's what a lot of times split us up. <laughs> but this one was a big party because it was going to be a family reunion. And my sister Jane said, she's very proper in her way. You know, she's the same one that my mother said, take the girls into the room and tell them about the birds and the bees. It's time. But Jane would say, well. And this is what she said that day. We are going to have a family reunion. And we have to start planning today because all we have is a year and a half. <laughs> so, I'm going to assign something to all of you. Sharon, you will be in charge of the music. And Roy, who was my baby brother, she said, we need a pig that we're going to roast. Find a pig. <laughs> so that was his assignment. And then others had assignments for entertainment for the children before they went to bed. And there was a, another a group of people that had to go to Audience Point. Where is she? and hold the spot for the picnic. This event was to take three days. The first day on Friday was a meet and greet. And I'm telling you, people were coming in from all over the place. There were so many people. My younger sister looked at me and said, who's the white lady? <laughs> relatives that we didn't know. I said, that's Aunt Gladys. Oh, really? So we had the meet and greet, and then on Saturday was the picnic. And the picnic was to start at 8 o'clock in the morning, but someone had to go there and hold the spot. And they sent the two people over there to hold the spot that drank all night. <laughs> and they, when we got there, they were asleep under this, the tree, you know, the tree. So that was the beginning of the Saturday affair. Saturday evening, there was to be a dance. And at the dance, everyone was to dress up, and they did, and come to dance and congregate and have cocktails and food and what have you. Well, I'm going to reel back to uh, the, the picnic, because my nephew Skippy was in charge of the picnic. And he gathered up all these young children. And back then, it was the year of 1992. And the breakdancing was happening. Remember the breakdancing? Well, there was going to be a winner during the breakdancing. And there had to be like 50 kids that were rolling all over the place and looking like 10 Michael Jacksons or 100 Michael Jacksons. But the person that won the breakdance was my sister Ida. <laughs> And she was 75 years old. <laughs> I still have the picture of her rolling around, and all of the kids are standing there looking at, looking at her. 
Well, that was the beginning of Saturday. Now the argument starts. You know, there's always a few arguments during the family reunion. And this was, you have to remember, my brother-in-law, Emerson, who was Jane's husband, was born and raised in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And if you didn't look at him, you'd think he was white because he spoke, he said, well, well where's the con? <laughs> Did anybody bring the con? And so my brother-in-law, Richard, who was from Los Angeles, said, where's the corn? <laughs> we got it. We got it. They brought the corn in. And then the argument started because Emerson felt that we should have ordered for this family reunion, instead of sticks of butter, we should have had the little ones that were cut up in squares. <laughs> now, my, now there's a big argument over you never bring pieces of square butter to a family reunion picnic. <laughs> So that went on for a little bit of a time, and that was horrendous. Now, we got the picnic over, except for the fact that if I reel back the night before, the pig was going to be roasted. But they put my brother Roy in charge of the pig. And Roy was a deal maker, like Trump. And he got the pig, but it was all cut up in pieces. And when they opened up the big package, there was a few legs and, you know, all of this other stuff that they were not capable of putting it on the sting and roasting it, you know. And then my brother Emerson, the guy from Portsmouth who talked like a white guy, said, ah, we might be able to piece it together. <laughs> so they're in the kitchen trying to put the pieces to make this pig look like a whole pig. And in the meantime... My sister Karen, who was the youngest of the family, who liked cognac. They, Emerson said, ah, Karen, we'll put you in the, he had a little shed that he built himself. He had this nice home on between Cut Street and Maplewood Avenue. And he had this shed where you also could go in there and sit down and meditate, you know, whatever you wanted to do in there. So there's my sister Karen in there. And he said, we're all going to bed now. Watch the pig. So he handed her a shotgun <laughs> and a glass of bourbon. <laughs> and Kitty's lying in there on this cot with a shotgun and a glass of bourbon, and the pig is already dead. <laughs> now, the next morning, as I reel ahead, of course, everybody enjoyed the pig because they didn't care if it came whole or it was cut up. So because, you know, it was a wonderful thing because half of them never saw a pig being roasted before, and that was okay. But now it gets to be Saturday evening for the dance. Now, the dance was wonderful. I was the DJ. They didn't want to hire a full band. That particular family reunion, which was the last one, I was the DJ, and I played all this wonderful music. Well, I ended up playing like, Johnny Mathis, you know, it was just fabulous music. And before I knew it, everyone was standing behind me throwing records on, you know. And so I walked away, and they, they finished playing the music and what have you. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, they hired me to be the DJ, and there's seven people back there playing records. Well, that was okay, too. But the thing about this reunion is, is this, in particular. We had had two reunions before that. And this one, there had to have been about 180 people there. Like I said, 
people of all nationalities, relatives that I had, had not met before, and it was wonderful. All 13 children attended. There were grandchildren and cousins that I didn't know that came in from San Francisco. And we got to know each other and love each other and talk and laugh, and it was chaotic and fun and happy. A lot of noise. There was music and joking. There, the whole thing that a family reunion is about. There was the cake. At the end of the evening, on Saturday night, which was the second night of the event, we rolled this big cake out onto the, the area where the dance was that said, uh, uh, Jones Persons Family Reunion. My father's name was Jones, and my mother's family's name was Persons. And most of them were um, really didn't look real. <laughs> they were real white-looking people. <laughs> and the combination came together, and, and, and it was wonderful. Now, at the end of the dance, we had a ceremony where that was the only family union my mother had not attended because she had passed away three years prior. We put my father in a chair, a nice chair with velvet on it, and sat him there, and every one of the grandchildren during this music sung by Johnny Mathis, which was called Where or When, it seems we stood and talked like this before. We looked at each other in the same way then. But I can't remember where or when, and Johnny was singing it, and each grandchild walked up and handed my father a rose. And at the end of the night, we all went back home, and we sat up half of the night, like large families doing talk, and laughed some more, and the music was loud, and it was still the family reunion. When my sister Jane stood up and said, it's time for everyone to go home. <laughs> go to bed because we have to go to church in the morning. And they're all going. <laughs> <laughs> so they all went along their way. Half of the motels in Portsmouth were all booked up because all the family had the motels. And the very next morning, all of the cars lined up in front of my sister Jane and my brother-in-law Emerson's house. Pretty cars. And the ones that weren't really pretty looked pretty because they went that morning and washed them and shined them all up. Well, that ceremony was part of the planning because we were to go to the grave site where my mother was laid to rest. We walked into Jane's house, and as noisy and chaotic as it had been that first two days, it was completely quiet that morning. They walked into my sister Jane and Emerson's house. They were each handed a rose, and my father was handed a yellow one. Everyone else had a red one. My three brothers escorted my father to the head car, and we had a convoy all the way to the cemetery. When we got there, it was so quiet, you would, could not imagine there were that many people there. They walked up to my mother's site, each person laying a rose before anyone. My father walked up and kneeled, and we allowed him to stay there as long as he needed to. 
he laid the yellow rose on top of her gravesite, and the rest of them followed. When it was over, all of us went back to our cars and drove through Portsmouth back to Jane's house, and it felt as if the whole city of Portsmouth went silent. It was a wonderful family reunion, but I have to tell you, right now they're planning another one, my nieces and nephews. And since then, I've lost all but two sisters. My sister May, who was the firstborn, Anna, Ida, Jane, Jean, Marjorie, my brothers Harry, Tommy, and Roy, my sisters Frances, and Jean. And as I try to come to grips with the time of the year it is right now, it's very difficult um, because we were such a, a connected family that every holiday brought us back together into another a family union, a family reunion. And this is home. Portsmouth is home. And this is where they all came for the reunions and for the birthdays and for the anniversaries and whatever else we had going. They showed up. The next one, I'm sure there will be another family reunion. And the younger generation will take care of it and handle it, and it will be different. But we'll all come together again. And we'll laugh and we'll sing and we'll rejoice. And these people that are no longer here, I just have to know that they're the parents of the children who are going to try to do this next one. And even though I sit back sometimes and I say, oh, they're going to be in charge of this one, or I don't know. <laughs> I know it's going to be okay because it's home. It's going to bring us all back home. And I thank you all for listening. Our next storyteller is Pat Spaulding from Rye, New Hampshire, a woman whom I believe needs no introduction, but she gets one anyway. <laughs> She's a retired puppeteer who now has the good fortune of doing pretty much whatever she wants to. Identifying herself as a monologist majorette, Pat writes and tells stories for adults, is a majorette with the leftist marching band, sings with the Contutti Chorus, and is the MC of our storytelling program, True Tales Live. When she asked herself the question, what is home, Pat immediately knew the answer, and she now tells us what it is in her story, Camp. Pat, come on up. Okie dokie. Gonna switch notebooks here. Oops. I have to thank Mimi White, who's in this audience. She's a Portsmouth poet and was a poet laureate, I believe, in 
2005, and she came up with a question, what is home? And it, that question has resonated deeply. That was the theme of her stint as the poet laureate. And I participated in some workshops, and I actually get some poems out of it on deadline, which is the way I do anything. So I revisited this theme again and came up with this story, Camp. I was four years old and going to camp for the first time. After an hour-long ride, are we there yet, are we there yet, are we there yet, with my brother, my baby brother Dean, in the back seat of the car, we finally stopped at the end of a long dirt road surrounded by woods. Is this camp? I didn't know what camp was, but I'd heard a lot about it. For months, my father had been searching for a lakeside cabin, which was a private space and affordable he said, but must said, not some crummy shack. It's got to have character and charm. Dad finally found his private, affordable place. There was no road to it, and it was in the woods. Ma packed my brother along with a few groceries into a woven Indian basket, which Dad strapped onto his shoulders, and into the woods we went. Fifteen minutes down the path, I spotted the elbow tree. A magical tree that grew up for a few feet and then banged a sharp right angle to grow horizontal to the ground before it turned to go up again, creating a perfect little bench for a kid to sit on. And from that time on, the elbow tree marked the halfway point on the path to camp. We emerged from the woods to an open area scented with June pinks, wild azaleas. There were butterflies and dragonflies and little tiny birds and, and bumblebees. It was like the trailer to a Disney movie. <laughs> We're on a lake shore in an old weathered cabin with a, a screened-in porch had a tree that grew right up through the screened-in porch. There was a hole cut for in the floor and in the roof, and then the branches of this old maple spread out across the whole camp. This was part treehouse. There were no other cabins on the lake. On the opposite shore, just a long line of hills, which to my kid eyes looked like mountains. I figured this place was half Heidi of the Mountains and Swiss Family Robinson. There were great big chunky boulders on the water's edge, bigger than our kitchen at home, a fallen birch tree that was still alive. It stretched out over the lake for about 20 feet until the branches went up again. You could shinny right, across, right along that birch tree, you know, straddling it like a horse, and ride over the waves, which I did for years, many summers after, with my brother right behind me galloping. This was a magical place. There was an old wood cook stove in the kitchen, a black iron sink with an old pump, a hand pump that drew water from the well. I mean, not the well, the lake. What am I saying? There was no well. There was no plumbing. There was a round oak table with matching chairs and in the center, a kerosene lantern against the wall, open shelves with fiesta ware stacked up. In one corner, an old wooden high chair that was the perfect fit for my brother. Oh my God, said my mother. It looks like they just moved out of here yesterday. The cabin had been un unoccupied for three years. It had character 
and charm and mice and an outhouse. There was no plumbing, no electricity. There still isn't. A dock was built, boats were purchased. We learned how to swim underwater, then on top of the water. How to skinny dip and paddle a canoe. Dad showed us how to water ski and cannonball off the dock. Grandfathers taught us how to fish, mostly for hornpout after dark. Cousins, aunts, uncles joined us on different weekends. There was always plenty to do, plenty of people to do it with. Dad could have done with a little less company, but often it was just the four of us at camp. Every Sunday morning, Dad, who was a Protestant, boated my mother, brother, and me, the Catholics, over to Mrs. Smith's dock, about a quarter mile away, and the only camp that we could see from our place. We met up with Mrs. Smith's cook and her gardener, also Catholics, to travel to Harrisville to church. This ritual gave my father three hours of peaceful quiet, which he much appreciated. I remember standing on Mrs. Smith's dock with my mother and brother. I must have been about six years old. We were all happy to see Dad's boat motoring toward us. When I suddenly felt a sense of sadness for my parents, imagining how empty their lives would be without me <laughs> and my brother. So I asked my mother, Mommy, what would you have done if we were never born? She didn't hesitate. She just looked at me and said, well, I would have missed you for the rest of my life. Good answer. <laughs> that was our childhood at camp. Family fun, growth and gain with the expectation of more. And so it went through high school and college and our early working years when Dean and I went to camp with different friends more often than we did with the whole family. Camp was always there for us, always waiting for whomever we brought along with us. Then, when I was 27 years old and Dean was 24, my brother drowned, far away, not at camp, but in the Hudson River in New York, where he worked. The accident shattered our family. What will we do without him? My mother, father, and I went to camp where mine and I told stories about Dean over coffee and cocktails by the lake when we were swimming or paddling the canoe, when we were hiking down the path, we kept him with us. Dad listened, but he never contributed to the stories. His son was gone. There was nothing to be done. My father was a practical man. So he busied himself, jacking up the foundation, shimming doors, puttying windows, keeping the camp that sheltered us whole and intact. After five years of missing Dean, my mother joined him, and the family was down to two, me and Dad. We kept going to camp. Dad split and stacked wood while I wrote in my journal on the dock looking out over the lake. I brought friends to camp to share this place, to hike, to paddle, to swim, cook over the wood stoves. Sometimes I'd bring a boyfriend. One February night, might have been Valentine's Day, I slid across the lake on cross-country skis with a sort of boyfriend to see how he'd react to this place. 
The Milky Way spread out above us on a clear night, and there was enough moonlight to shine down and sparkle this carpet of snow, this fast carpet across the lake. It was gorgeous. We slid into the cabin and um, had to shovel snow away from the door. That porch with a tree that grew up through it had long since had to be taken away. We could see our breath in the kitchen. And he started a fire. And we pulled out a bottle of wine. And he started telling me stories, stories about his life that I had never heard before. The next morning, he got up to start that fire again. I woke up to the smell of bacon and the delivery of a crisp piece of bacon while I remained under the covers. <laughs> the magic returned. In winter, camp always smells like wood smoke and bacon. In spring, it smells like crushed butter ferns. In summer, after swimming, everyone smells like the lake. I got married to David, a capable man who loved the place and assisted dad in shoring up the foundation and repairing the roof, keeping the boat and motor running. One summer morning, David and I were alone at camp and it was raining sheets. We'd planned to go out and pick blueberries, but this rain would not let up. We didn't have rain gear. It was summer. So we just stripped off our pajamas, ran out naked in the rain to pick blueberries. <laughs> Camp's magic continued like this for many years. Then change happened again. My marriage was on the rocks. David and I had never had kids. Dad got a terminal cancer diagnosis, and knowing he'd no longer be there for me, my father was trying to get his affairs in order. You can't keep this place by yourself. There's too much to do. You gotta jack it up one way or the other way every year. In order to keep the place standing, you gotta keep the motorboat running and the boat and the dock. You gotta get the dock in, the dock out. You, you don't know how to do all that stuff. You got nobody to help you. Just sell it. You'll get a lot of money. Let some other family enjoy it. You know, a family with kids to raise like we did. Maybe. If I'd been a more generous person, I would have taken my father's practical advice, but I had let go of too many people I loved, and I was not going to let go of camp. After Dad died, other people showed up to help me. Old friends and new ones, cousins and family, all of whom knew and loved camp, and some of whom loved me. Every spring, every fall, after docking, after dock out, there are lakeside parties around the cocktail table where more good memories are created and shared. This past summer, after an intense blowdown that took out 30 trees around camp, my dock crew showed up with chainsaws to cut and stack wood. I didn't ask them. They told me they were coming. Life. People come when people leave. The same people are not always present. But place can remain. Camp is such a place. It continues to be 
a magical presence in my life. Camp is my home. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Lovely. Thanks to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our studio audience for being here to participate. Coming up next, we do have an interview. Um, but first, I have some announcements. Two Tales Live is taking December off, both for the show and the workshop. We will be back here at PPM-TV for our workshop on January 9th and our show on Tuesday, January 30th. And the theme that night is, we don't have a theme, it's open theme night, anything goes. So we have um, all of our 2018 themes are listed on our Facebook page, um, or we can send them to you. No month has filled up yet, so we are really looking forward to hearing from you about when you are coming to tell your story. Email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com. Also, if you want to tell a story but would like a little help, encouragement, want to try it out before the cameras run, um, come to one of our monthly storytelling workshops, nearly monthly, I should say, none in December. Held here at PPM-TV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They're free, open to everyone. And as I said, the next one is January 9th. Watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. At any time as video on demand. You can go to YouTube.com and search for PPMTV True Tales Live. That's the fastest way to get it. And let's thank some of those who make the show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Steve Koval, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. I'm, I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening and watching, and have a great end of your year. We'll see you in January as the light is growing longer. We look forward to that. And now stay tuned for our storyteller, storyteller interview.